0: I just want to welcome everybody tonight um, on this uh, occasion of opening the exhibition Basim Magdi, the stars were aligned for a century of new beginnings, which I love as a title. Um, I just want to uh, say a few words of welcome before passing over to Basim and Lucy, who are going to talk about art, I hope, Um, the interesting bit. So forgive me, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, First, though, I just want to say uh, it's a real delight to have this exhibition here. Um, I hope you'll all have the time to spend um, in the galleries looking at the work tonight. Um, I think it's a really thought-provoking and uh, substantial body of work, and we're really um, lucky to have been able to bring this to Bristol. So um, uh, on that note, I want to thank some people who have been instrumental in doing that, um, because these things don't happen just uh, through uh, the work of uh, a few people. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to say thank you to uh, Deutsche Bank, who have been um, helpful and supportive in uh, enabling us to bring this work here. And in particular, um, two personal um, notes of thanks to Britta Farber and to Mary Finlay, who I think is here tonight, um, waving at me, thank you. Um, I'm really glad you could join us, Mary, as well. Um, also to Pro Helvetia, who have very generously supported the exhibition. Um, And to Big Screen Bristol, who are hosting um, on the screen of Millennium Square um, a piece of work as an off-site presentation, which is happening um, at various times throughout the run of the show. So I do hope you can catch that as well. All the details of the timings are on our website. Um, Also to Cutler and Gross, who are supporting the exhibition too. And um, finally, and not least at all, uh, to our core funders, the Arts Council England, who are steadfast supporters of Arnolfini and to Bristol City Council as well. Um, I want to thank all the team at Arnolfini who've worked incredibly hard in bringing this together. The exhibition is, of course, a full team effort. Um, Though I do want to extend particular thanks to Lucy Badrock, who has been the curator of the exhibition and has led the team admirably and in delivering the exhibition, so thank you very much. Um, Also, Uh, temporarily part of our team, um, to Michaela Murphy, who has joined us from the States, who is uh, supporting both Basim and us in creating the exhibition here. Um, Finally, can I thank you, Basim? Um, Without the artist, obviously none of this is possible, um, but you have been extremely generous in working with us and a pleasure to work with, and we're delighted with the way the exhibition has turned out. And now onto the most important and interesting bit to talk about the art as well. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Great. Um, so, just to let you know a little bit about the format, we'll we'll have a fairly informal conversation, and we'll open up for questions as well. But if anyone has any burning questions that they would like to ask, and um, can't wait until, yeah, then do feel free to chip in at any time. We have got roving mics, so if you could please wait for the microphone to come before you speak, just to make sure that everyone in the room can hear, that would be great. Um, so, the um, Stars Were Aligned for a Century of New Beginnings is presented as part of Deutsche Bank's Artist of the Year program. It premiered in Berlin in 2016 before traveling to Maxi in Rome and on to MCA in Chicago, and we're very happy at Arnolfini to we'll be presenting additional works, um, No Shooting Stars on the Ground Floor, which is a work Basim made last year. And Sorry, I'll lean forward a bit. Um, I can do that, yeah. yes. Okay. And also um, 13 Essential Rules on the second floor. As Rob mentioned, we're also presenting an off-site work um, on big screen Bristol and Millennium Square. And we're really happy that Basim's um, Created a new painted a new uh, installation in Gallery Three for the works on page paper, which looks really beautiful. Um, the, the works in the exhibition um, many of them fo- focus on the future and specifically um, on the ideas around hopefulness and failure in ideas about the future, as the uh, as the title of the exhibition reflects very nicely the idea of um, a century of new beginnings, which initially sounds very positive, but then of course. Um, you realize that actually you're doing the same thing over and over again. So perhaps we could start here and you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Um, Well, first of all, thank you all for coming. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, um, Sarah. Thanks, everybody at Arnolfini. Uh, Thanks, Michaela, who also helped me a lot, Deutsche Bank, and, you know, everybody who helped. I'm going to forget a lot of people. Um, uh, I mean, there's... My work is constantly changing as, um, as I get older, as I understand the world in a different way, and as also my, my tools change, and I understand my tools better, and I develop the way I use them. So one thing I started working with in, um, I think around 2013, was this idea of, of societies getting together, uh, trying to accomplish something, failing, still hoping, trying again and all these cycles and the idea that time is is more um cyclical than than linear that things repeat themselves and people generations make the same mistakes uh, maybe in different within different contexts at different times but you know cities countries things happen all the time and and we maybe refuse to believe that they have happened before and that we we always like to feel like this is a very unique experience, this is something that we're experiencing for the first time and and no one has ever experienced before and we're so amazing and special but we're not. Um, So I started working with these ideas and I I tried to approach them from using different uh, mediums but also from different angles. One of the earliest works uh, that I've tried to tackle this was, uh, it's, it's in the show, it's called a 240-second analysis of failure and hopefulness with coke, vinegar, and other tear gas remedies. Um, for this work, I was actually starting to work with photography, and I was also starting to work with a process that I like to call film pickling where I take a roll of film and I pickle it in household chemicals, acidic household chemicals, and that changes the color of the photographs. It does a lot of things, but the most, the, the, the most um, uh, obvious thing that people notice right away is that the colors are very bright. There's a high contrast, but there's always also a dominant color in the photograph. Uh, what I did was that I, there was this huge demolition site, and I went there for uh, over a period of a month. I took pictures almost every day. And during that month, it evolved from being a a demolition site to a construction site. And I took these photographs, and I, of course, they went through a a huge process of selection because I took too many uh, many photographs. And in the end, I I ended up with with, uh, 160 slides, which I divided um, in two carousels for two projectors. Each one has 80. And... I was experimenting with them in my studio and at some point they overlapped and I saw that in this overlap there was always this kind of like overlap of images of colors the color change but also it became a good um, a good way to to demonstrate that hopefulness and failure are there is no there are no lines there you know the 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 lines between them are blurred Mm. Um, in the most euphoric uh, uh hopeful moments, there's always failure usually failure comes after that and in the the biggest uh um, moments of failure, there is always hope in the background, and it just it it could be the fuel that that you know creates better things for the future um so this was the first work I, I made that kind of dealt with this idea, in the end I decided not to put them in a chronological order. I decided to have them overlap. Um, and it becomes really difficult to tell what's demolition and what's what's construction. Um, after that, I started working on a film that, I, that was very important for me and for my work, uh, The Dent, which is also in the show. Um, and it ended up being the first part of what I see as a loose trilogy, uh, which are, all the films in this trilogy are about societies and how they function but in this film there is a, an anonymous small town that um, its inhabitants wake up one morning and decide they want to get some sort of um, international recognition they want the world to recognize that they exist so they start by bidding to host the Olympics and the committee is coming the next day but they decided to party all night and um, and it says, the, the film says, everyone partied and no one cared. And eventually the committee comes the next day and they're not impressed and they don't get to host the Olympics. Um, and then they, they, they embark on so many absurd uh, missions to do things that no one else has done. And eventually they have to choose between two um, scenarios. One is to accept that they will keep on failing. Like their ancestors, and they were—they're going to make the same mistakes, and just to accept that and stop trying, or to keep on trying, and maybe one day they will succeed. They choose to do the first. Um, so this—this this kind of—you know—these th- were my two days of uh, two ways of approaching this idea, and it's something that is—I'm still kind of um, observing it happening throughout my life in different societies, in different contexts, in different countries. Um, smaller context, bigger context, uh, and I'm I'm learning from this a lot, and, and the more I learn from watching this happen, the more I feel like I have more to say about it. Um, yeah. yeah.
2: Great. And you mentioned um, film pickling briefly. Um, could you maybe um, describe a bit how you came to start using that process? Because you trained as a painter, um, and I know that painting and works on paper are still a very important part of your practice. How did you come to, um, to start working with film and photography in particular and start to um, develop these experimental ways of working?
1: Well, I started, um, when I started working with film, I started with Super 8 actually, not with photography, which is the reverse of what most people do. Um, I grew up in Egypt and, and you know, which is not the same situation as in in Europe and, and you know, in the West or the East actually, where mm-hmm. families would have a film camera at a certain point in the sixties and the seventies and the eighties and they would go on holiday and shoot footage and then go home and watch it all together on a projector. <laughs> I wasn't familiar with a Super Eight cam- camera until my early thirties and then I found one and I found a cartridge and I thought I'd try it. And uh, so actually I I bought several cartridges and I tried them all and when I got them from the lab they were all out of focus because I refused to read the manual. Um, But then I still refused to read the manual and I decided to watch a YouTube tutorial which helped a lot and I ended up learning actually almost everything I I know from YouTube tutorials. Um, But that was the beginning and, and then at some point I also you know, I had a bigger budget, so I I bought a 60 millimeter camera and I started working with 60 millimeter. And I think when I started working with 60 60 millimeter, because I had more more film to actually play with, I started seeing my fingerprints on the film, and I started realizing that I could punch holes in it, that I could draw on it, that I could scratch it, I could, you know, um, uh, bend it and break it and stand on it and jump on it and do things. Um, it 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 became clear that anything that touches the film leaves a mark on it, and I really like that. Uh, but also the 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 other things that became really clear to me when I first saw the first footage that I shot was that it has a depth that doesn 't um, it has a depth that is not in in digital images that I was used to, but also the grain and the the contrast and the color of the film gives it a very unique feel which is is um, it makes it more of a representation of reality than trying to mimic reality. And I always see what I do as fiction, so it became kind of logical to use something that's more of a representation of reality to use it to make fiction than to use something that mimics reality so well to make something that's not real, that's not about reality. Um, at some point when I became interested in film, I, I started reading a lot about experiments that people were doing, and there was this blog post by someone who put a roll of film in the dishwasher and the results were amazing they were very colorful unexpected like it was like fireworks in the image and I really liked it so I took a roll of film and I put in the dishwasher and my results were not as amazing but I kept trying and I kept trying to understand how this works like the chemistry of how this works and how what affects the emulsion of the film and uh, so I started working with different kinds of film and different kinds of chemical, and I realized that each kind of film would respond to the same chemical differently; it would produce a different dominant color. So I started making these tables uh, of, you know, that would include type of film, chemical, the period of time it spends in the chemical, and the color it produces. Um, and now I I know. What, I'm, what to expect when I pickle a roll of film, maybe 85% and the other 15% are the exciting part, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but yeah, I'm a lot more experienced now with this. But there is still a lot of, because the, the variables are so many, yeah, that there's still a lot of, you can, you can do one chemical after the other. It's, it's almost as if you're putting filters in front of the lens, but instead of putting them in front of the lens, you're putting them on the actual, on the film. Um, some produce dots, some produce drips, some kind of uh, d- disintegrate the film much faster than others. So you really need to be knowledgeable about what you're doing. And it's always better to do it before you shoot the photographs because at least then you won't be losing your photographs. If... And I do all of this in my bathroom, so it's fun. <laughs> in the dark.
2: In the dark, in your yes. bathroom.
1: <laughs> the dark of my bathroom.
2: And in many of the films you get this very beautiful quality of collaging... Um, all these, uh, all the um, different, different images superimposed together, but also um, I know you, the with the, the narrative and the text, and the soundtracks which I know you make yourself. Um, in fact, you make everything yourself. Um, how do you go about that process of taking this material and and um, putting it together in a way that in a way that flows together? Do you have a, a kind of strong idea of? It does, do you feel like the narrative leads the, leads the process, or, or is it more like working with a, with a kind of set of materials together?
1: It's mainly magic.
2: Magic, yeah. excellent. <laughs>
1: um, no, I, I, uh, I actually, um, most of the time, I start <laughs> shooting footage without knowing what I'm going to do with it, but I, I reached a point of kind of understanding myself that I know if I see something that I would like to take footage of, that I will use it. Because that's one of the things about film is that every, every second costs money. So you can't just, you know, shoot and be like, okay, I'll delete it or throw it away. It's expensive. So, but I, I kind of understand what I could use and what I won't be able to use in the future. So I shoot a lot of footage and I travel for my shows. So I end up shooting a lot whenever I travel. But one thing I like to keep in mind is to shoot footage of places or of details that look familiar but are unrecognizable because yeah. it's very important for me that the films become, um, that people can relate to them regardless of where they come from or their background or, or, you know, if I show them in different contexts in different places, people could still relate to them as, uh, could still see themselves as part of the film uh, as opposed to like if you make a film about a particular place, then you're relating to it on the level of what I know about this place or what I don't know about this place. But still so there's a wall between you and this place because it's not your city. It's not your place. You're not, you can't be one of the protagonists in the film. Um, but I start by shooting, and then I, I look a lot at the footage, and I, I watch it over and over again, and then I get ideas, and I start <laughs> writing, and then sometimes I write too much, so I have more um, script than the footage, so I go back and shoot, and it keeps going back and forth until I feel like I have enough of both, and I'm happy with the script, and I'm happy with the footage that I have, and that's when I start editing, and when I start editing, I start building the the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. And I kind of developed uh, a way of working that I really like, and I, I, I kind of really enjoy it, and I feel that it's somehow effective. Sometimes it gets uh, too difficult for people to follow, but sometimes it could be an interesting experience from, for some other people. <laughs> Which is that I, I, like, I see those three elements, the, the, the footage, the, the images, the, the text, which is the script, and the soundtrack as three elements. And they, run, they mostly run parallel to each other. Um, sometimes they overlap, they intersect, and sometimes they drift apart. But there's always hints within them. Um, so if you, if you see a cat, you don't hear the sound of a cat. Yeah. And the text, the script is not about a cat. But you could hear something that hints to a cat and there could be something in the script that also hints to a cat um, i like to play these mind games and and people respond to them differently but um i think for me at least the trick is as long as the film as long as the film flows smoothly and there are no abrupt changes or or Something that kind of completely distracts because it 's a very sensitive process, I understand that there's a very fine line between doing this and making things that are completely abstract that no one understands them, so the challenge is always to keep it in that in that zone where it flows, but it 's also still it still makes sense slightly, and it 's not completely absurd <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, absurdity is something that um, I know that you consider in your work um, and also. Uh, I mean you mentioned it just now the people's relationship to the film and you've you've spoken, you've mentioned a few times that you're interested in an an emotional reaction to the film which is to your work which is something that you um, that is quite evident in in the large photographic work upstairs an apology to a love story Um, and I think it's interesting it's not something that I think um, it's not necessarily common I think for somebody to, to for an artist to be specifically looking for that, that to trigger an emotional reaction in a, in a viewer?
1: Um, that actually started with uh, 13 Essential Rules for Understanding the World, which is the last work in the, in the show. Uh, and it happened by accident. I didn't mean to do that. I just made this film and it was very didactic and very bleak, but also it had I tried to balance this out with uh, uh, slight humor, with the tulips and the faces drawn on them. Um, and what happened I was just like watching people watch it and I realized that most people smile in the beginning until maybe the sixth rule which says never let yourself fall asleep you'll dream and then it starts sinking in and they start they stop smiling and it's just like (laughs) they look miserable and I I, of course in the beginning it's like funny and I'm like you know this is interesting but then I started thinking about it I realized people are reacting to this in an emotional way. And this is something interesting, and I, I I would love to do this more. And it became something that I have been working with since then to try to put an emotional element in it, that I want people to feel things and not just think things. Mm. Uh, maybe they won't even feel or think or like the work, but at least that there is this possibility, that there is this you know opportunity to feel something. Um, and of course, throughout this process, I've been thinking... That I would love to make a work about a love story, but you know, of course, there is the fear or you know the the threat of doing something that's totally cheesy because you know everybody has done something about a love story. Um, But also in in art, um, it's not something that's very common that people make artworks about about love. About feelings, about how we feel about each other. Uh, so I started. I was again. I was taking a lot of pictures, and I was writing these fragments of a fictional love story. I didn't want to write a love story and then fragment it. I wanted to leave, even for myself, to leave like these kind of black holes in between things. Um, but it was clear for me from the beginning that this shouldn't be a film because films are, are linear, time, you know, they're, they're time based. So you see one thing and then you see another thing. There's, there's an order, there's a sequence. Um, and I wanted, I, I, f- I feel that love stories are a lot more complex than the beginning and the end and, and the chronological order of how events take place. Um, so I decided from the beginning to make a work that kind of spreads out the whole love story that way. it's just like so big and it's all over the place and it's like a monster but it has a lot of details um so I, I was taking a lot of pictures I was writing these fragments and eventually I started putting them together and of course editing which fragments I want to have in it so in reality it does have a beginning and an end and they're kind of like embedded in there so they're not in the beginning and the end mm-hmm. but what's in between is the most interesting part for me, which is a lot of conversations, dreams, failures, uh, frustrations, um, things that are about, you know, love for like lost love between two people, but they still love the kids and things, things like that. And, and a little bit of politics, a little bit of humor, uh, a little bit of absurdity also. Um, and to me, that, that kind of represents the complexity of, of a love story of two people uh, you know, like going through their lives like this, and at some point their lives intersect, and there is a spark, and they 're really happy and but then their lives keep going in different go. directions, but they 're trying to kind of make this still yeah. work, trying to bring back this beautiful moment uh, that they both experienced um, yeah, so that's and and my idea was with the fragments was very simple. I wanted it because each fragment is kind of like a little story on its own. So I was hoping, you know, that's something that I think everyone can relate to. We all fell in love. We all know what love is. And um, so I was hoping that, you know, as many people as possible, not every person, but as many people as possible would at least relate to one small part, mm. uh, one fragment. Not the whole thing, but one fragment would be enough. Um, yeah, and hopefully it would just, you know, they will wake up the next morning and still think about it. That would be great.
2: That would be nice. Yeah. Um and we talked um we were talking we talked earlier about No Shooting Stars and um the film that we're showing on the ground floor which does it's the most recent work in the show made in made last year in 2016 um and it does feel like you took quite a different approach in working with um the ocean as a as a as a space as an entity as opposed to an idea of the future or a social or political structure so It would be interesting to maybe to kind of consider consider that work in relation to the other films in the exhibition and how and then the approach you took to producing that work.
1: Um, I was invited by a curator to do a commission for two solo shows uh, in France, and it was part of a series of four shows where she was asked to invite four artists to make new uh, time-based works that have something to do with the ocean. I usually don't like this idea, and I say no to like, commissions that come with a, with a specific idea. Mm-hmm. But there were two things. When I talked to her, I, I realized that um, it was a very broad kind of understanding of the ocean, that all like, the other three artists would each do something completely different. But also, it's, it's, it was something that I've always been interested in, uh, I, I've been really fascinated with those kind of like two territories, outer space and the ocean, because they, they're kind of very similar in a, in a very strange way. Uh, we have actually been, well we, not like me personally, but humanity has been to the moon more times than to certain depths of the ocean. There's a lot more that we don't know about the deep ocean than we know about the rest of the planet. Um, and I started looking at how humanity has been looking at the ocean in the beginning as a scary place uh, you know you see things and you don't understand them so you come up with monsters and, and mermaids and you know whatever we don't understand we kind of try to create a myth around it to explain it to ourselves um, and of course, of course all those myths have to look like us just like Aliens look like us. They're slightly different, but you know, they're always hybrids of us. Um, but then, historically, things changed when when water was, you know, started being navigated and, and people started traveling and exploring. And but at the same time, islands became the place where you banish people because water was still seen as a barrier. And later, it, they were they became the places where you build high security prisons and. Now, you know, all the internet cables are in the ocean, so the, kind of like the internet lives there. And there is all the drilling. and So it's it was a lot of material and a lot of information that I, I wasn't trying to make a documentary. I just wanted to put all those ideas in a film, and I felt like the best kind of uh, container for all of this is to make a a film that's poetic, that asks questions, that has a narrator that's mysterious in the beginning of the film you think maybe that's the ocean talking but then at some point it starts about being in love with the ocean so is it in love with itself or is it someone else and that's I mean for me it's not important to to know or explain what this is I feel I I kind of like I wanted to keep this sense of mystery around it and the whole point for me was to come up with a conclusion of like yes this is an interesting place I would love to know more about it it's very mysterious but realistically speaking it's probably better if we don't know more about it yeah and it's better if we leave things the way they are and uh yeah we can we can kind of like build our own mythology around it but just as long as we don't um know more but uh ironically on the way here I was on the bus and I watched uh a, a documentary uh that was about um what are they called um uh, creatures that Um, eliminate their own light yes I know what you
2: mean uh, yeah
1: Uh, long word what's the yeah there was a term um yes thank you it was gonna haunt me forever (laughs) bioluminescence uh and a lot of these live in the deep ocean Mm -hmm. and I was thinking I do actually want to know more about this (laughs) so but but this is you know it's it's that's how work evolves yeah um but I felt it was it was important to include it in this show, because yes, the oceans are part of the future, but also i I wanted to kind of create a I wanted to show the development of my work, and yeah. this is something i mean i've many years ago I made a a film about what started as our understanding of outer space and ended up being about the fact that we don't know anything about un- outer space, and we just kind of like. You know, building our own understanding of it, but that even that changes all the time. There was actually a very interesting overlap when I was working on the ocean uh, on, on no shooting stars because there is one particular creature called uh, giant tube worms, which were discovered recently in the late 70s, I think. And they live around very, very deep in the ocean and they live around uh, vents called black smokers, and mm-hmm. these, there's a lot of Hydrogen sulfide and, and methane coming out of these black smokers. There's a lot of... It's, of course, completely dark. And that's like two kilometers or three kilometers under the surface. And uh, poisonous gases, darkness, it, insane pressure, and they're alive. Yeah. And when they found them, that actually changed everything about the way astronomers have been looking for life on outer planets. Because before that, they were looking for life... In a place that has an atmosphere that has a like is a, 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 dis- a particular distance from its star, there's light, there is water, there's air, there's gases. But you know nobody was looking for creatures that live around methane in the darkness under extreme pressure. Yeah. So of course now they're looking for life on, or you know at least kind of like accepting the idea that there could be life on methane planets. So all these things are changing, and I, I really, I, I, I was very tempted to include that in the, in the film, but um, yeah, I didn't in the end. But I like to tell this story. It's a nice and, story. And what's even better is that I was, in last summer I was in Chicago and I went to a museum and they actually had specimens from giant tube worms pickled oh, nice. in, uh, in alcohol, and I got to touch them, and this was one of the best <laughs> things I ever did. It was just like holding them like this. <laughs> They were dead, a but still genuine
2: mysterious creature from yes. the sea. <laughs> um, it's not really a question, actually. It's more of a comment, I guess, um, and it's something that you've described as the exhibition octopus. So, the way that um, <laughs> the way that you. Uh, as well as producing the work that we can see in the galleries, um, you've also set up a hashtag for the exhibition. Um, there are various other ways that you um, make your work available. So, as well as presenting work in the galleries, you also show your work in film festivals and in uh, and you have all your films actually available in full on your website, um, which is which I you know I still find qu- quite surprising. It's not often that you um, that it feels like it still feels like quite a generous gesture um, in order to make your work available to as many people as possible um, so yeah I think
1: it's I mean it's <laughs> not really generous it's just why it's it's why people make films so this I, I make them for people to watch them so um, I mean I my work is seen in three different contexts one is the art context which is you know like here you enter a beautiful dark room there's a nice projection the sound is great and you can watch the film on loop it's a big projection and it's, a, it's kind of an intimate environment you can watch it for an hour several times or you can watch it once or you can not finish it um, or you know you can go to a film festival and watch it on a very big screen in a movie theater perfect sound but you only watch it once um, probably a film festival you will pay here at Arnolfini you don't pay Uh, But in other places, you might pay. But you're still very limited by geography and by the fact that someone has to pay and by the fact that you must be interested in that to get to the point where you actually voluntarily go. With the Internet, all of these things don't exist. You can have someone in India and someone in, in, in Colombia and someone in the North Pole watching the film at the same time. And... Also, you can have people who would never think about going to a place like Arnolfini or to a film festival to watch experimental or art films, um, which to me is great. And, and I, I love having my work exist on those three, uh, and they're very different, and the quality is very different. And it's been great because I've been getting a lot of amazing feedback from people I've never met uh, people would write to me or make comments or even take a screenshot of one of the films and then post it on a popular Tumblr and then it within two weeks it's reblogged like thirty thousand times and I spend two days going like this thirty thousand people <laughs> saw my film and um, it's it, it makes it more exciting it makes I mean that's the whole point of of making art and that's why I'm I'm trying to do this you know I'm, I have a show my work is on the wall the, the films are projected but at the same time I would love people to respond to kind of use the work as the material and turn it into something else something more personal so I'm asking people to take pictures shoot videos uh, parody parts of the films write something uh, take pictures of the work or a video of the work and alter it cross out words add words uh, write their own love story um, take you know use their own filters, just go crazy with it, and then post it on Instagram, and use the hashtag Dear Besom because then I would know that you did this. <laughs> um, and for me, it's like when I think about it, I know that people go see shows, and they they respond to them, they think things, and they feel things, but at the same time I never know, so I'm just, I would like to know yeah. what people see or think, and Sometimes people disagree. and some, I mean, I've had one of the best posts. I did this in, in the show at the MCA in Chicago in a, in a kind of like a slightly different way. Uh, but one of the best posts was someone saying that she disagrees or she made a post that kind of like showed her disagreement with one of the rules. And it was great. Nice. So, you know, you can do whatever you want. So, Lucy, you should make a post.
2: I'll make a post. I will definitely make and a post. And all of you, not just Lucy. <laughs> okay. um, maybe this is a good time to open up if anyone else has any questions that they'd like to ask us in. Yes. Sorry, would you mind waiting for the mic just so everyone can hear? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm um, going to
1: do this because there's a light. light.
2: <clears throat> I was just wondering, um, when you start making your work, um, if you have to justify it to yourself as to why you're making it? Um, is it like thinking about the perspective that you're offering and, in a kind of anxious way or or do you just make because you have to?
1: You mean financially? No, or as in... just you know, conceptually um, because yeah, it yeah, costs money? Uh, no. I just make <laughs> it. And if I don't like it then I don't show it. But, I mean, well, actually I don't really make works that I don't like because, not because I always do amazing things. <laughs> but because I never stop at that point, I, I kind of work more on them and I, I leave them for years maybe and then go back and, and never let go of them until I'm happy with them. But I, 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 never, I don't think I ever had this moment of feeling that I have to justify this. Um, this is, you know, I always say if I could write a paragraph that includes all my ideas, it will be a lot cheaper, and a lot easier, and a lot faster. But I can't. What I can do is make art, and that's my way of communicating my ideas. And sometimes, you know, people find that they actually communicate something to them, and sometimes they don't, and that's fine. And, but the main, main thing about making art for me is that I enjoy it. And it's, it's something that gives me pleasure, and it's something that makes me, that helps me deal with the world. And understand the world that's around me, and it's just like full of ideas. You know, you're doing something and you get an idea, and this kind of takes you in a different direction. Then it takes you in a different direction, and this kind of movement, navigation between ideas, is extremely um, enjoyable. And it, it really has to be fun. If it's not fun, then I just don't do it.
2: Okay. Um, also, so? um, are there any film artists that you recommend um, that you are, that you revere that are working now or have be- have worked in the past? And you're influenced by?
1: Um, sorry, can you ask that again?
2: Are there any um, like art, video artists, and um, filmmakers that you are influenced by that are working now or in the past? Um,
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> I really. I mean, I would. I don't want I don't want to sound like I. I don't care, but it's it's very like for me things happened in a completely different way. I went to an art school where there was no video art. Uh, we just learned painting and sculpture and printmaking. It was very conservative. I mean, it's not like part of my education. I learned about everything I know about art by myself. Through seeing things online, traveling, going to shows, talking to people. But at the same time, I feel like I learned about filmmaking by myself. It was this this kind of desire to learn how to deal with this material. It was, it was a very personal experience and a lot of uh, failures, and a lot of trial and error. Of course, I see films by a lot of other artists and I really like them, but you know, I can tell you that one of the films I really like is Magnolia, but that's not made by an artist, um, because I like the idea of having different narratives having a, happening at the same time, and I, I have, like, a very strange connection to it because I watched it right after I made the poster that says that ends with frogs start falling from the sky. So I felt like there is this connection. And, you know, Magnolia has all those narratives happening at the same time and they reach their peak of intensity and then frogs start falling from the sky and then everything starts getting resolved. Um, I, I, have, I have films that I like, but they're by mainstream Uh, directors, and of course there are a lot of artworks that I like by artists who work with film, but I can't tell you that there is one artist that influenced me. I was really influenced by the process, by the material, by my experimenting with it. Um, And I kind of tried to avoid this idea of of getting kind of stuck in the bubble of the art world and art history and just talking about art history and theory and, and what other artists have done. Because what ends up happening is that you have rooms full of people who only, are only here because they're related to art. And if someone comes from outside this, this world or this bubble, they don't understand anything. Um, which is also why in my, in my films I try to avoid making references to art history, for example. I make references to things that almost everybody knows.
2: So it's obviously important to you to work with film because of the physical relationship that you can have with it. But do you sort of trade something by having it on the internet? I mean, obviously not because you've pretty much said this, but I wonder if um, it loses its aura. I mean, you can't have a Mona Lisa on a postcard. So I wonder if something gets lost for you. Or perhaps you get something back that's more important, like... Uh, well, I also show my films communication.
1: from video projectors. Um, I'm interested in film because of a certain quality of the image and a certain quality of, of what I can do with it. But at the same time, I understand that there are limitations. Um, because I come from a place like Egypt, I also understand that I want to show my, place, my work in as many places as possible, and I know that... If I look for a sixty millimeter projector in Egypt, it will be very difficult, or in, in any actually third third world country, and I don't want my work to be ex- exclusive to museums and in in first world countries. So I had to make a choice, and my choice is I'm not interested in in uh, you know I'm not interested in the sound of the projector or or the way the projector looks in the exhibition space. Uh, I mean, that looks great, but that's not why I make films. I make films because of the content that's in them, what they say. Um, So it became really obvious to me that the most practical solution is to use, to convert everything to video. Actually, the footage is shot on film, but everything is edited on the computer because this allows me more freedom to do things, but also when I project, I can project really big uh, with a video projector. I can have better sound. I can have, you know, it just there are certain tools that are more practical um, which is why I also like I don't have a problem with people watching my, my films on a computer because if I didn't do this I would end up sending, uh, I mean well a few years ago I would have sent DVDs to curators all the time. Now of course everybody has their film on Vimeo with a password and the curator asks for the password and then you send the password. But I kind of like the idea that people watch it and I don't know. And also they don't have to ask me for things and I send it to them and we waste a lot of time. Um, It's just more practical. And I feel like, sometimes I feel like the art world is kind of still stuck in the 80s in, in a certain way, practical ways. And we're in 2017. So if we don't catch up, then...
2: Another question at the back. Yes. Um, how, would, oh, sorry. <laughs> how would, you describe the political motivation behind your work, and like, why would you say you feel so passionately?
1: Why, why, when?
2: Uh, why would you say you feel so passionately? Like, sorry. Uh, what's the political mo- motivation behind your work, why and you why it? do you feel passionately
1: about it? Oh. Um, by political motivation you mean it's relationship to politics Um, I don't make work with the intention of making political work or, or making work that has to do with politics or that has political elements but I politics is something that I have to deal with every day and read about every day and uh we're very exposed to what's happening all over the world now because we can it's not just the news it's not just tv there's also social media and you can you can get so many different accounts of of one event that happens in a place that's so far away from you that you will never visit but somehow you kind of something happens and you start watching all these videos and reading all those uh, uh twitter and 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 facebook statements uh, statuses and and then you kind of you feel like you know a lot more than you would know i feel like uh, Life now, is, is, it's very difficult to not have political opinions about things. So I don't intentionally try to add politics to the films, but it just happens because it's part of the way I think, it's part of the way I understand the world. Um, but it's not, it's not really... Yeah, I, don't, I would never think of what I do as political in any way.
3: Hi, um, you said a lot about sort of the external things that you've explored through your work, through um, you know, the mysteries of the ocean, the mysteries of space, um, how in society you know, sort of there's new beginnings and new endings. I was wondering when bringing this collection together, was there something you learned within yourself? You sort of said how you, know, you use art to make sense of the world, and was there something that you discovered uh, within yourself through making this collection, and um, do you define it as a, a new beginning for yourself? I discovered that I don't understand anything still
1: and that <laughs> I still have a lot to learn. <laughs> no, it was great, of course. I mean, it's... it's it kind of makes me feel old <laughs> because I also realize that I've, I've like, gone in different directions and that means time and, you know... Um, but it's it's great to see all these things together, and it's great also because this ha- this has been a show that has been shown in in three other uh, museums before, and it has been done in three different ways. It was also good to try to do it differently, to bring in works and remove works, and 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 paint the walls a different color, or like present the work and in you know create different context for it, and present it differently. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's too early for me to be able to answer this question because I've been just completely consumed in, in this show as it traveled. This is the last show of the series, so uh, maybe I'll give myself some time to actually. I, one thing I promised myself is that I need to stop making work for a while and think about what I've done, and think about what I want to do next. And of course, by for a while is probably like two three months, not like you know a long while. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can really answer your question. It just, I feel like yeah, a lot of these questions are still not answered. But even that, I don't think I make art to answer questions for myself. It's just me trying to let things out
3: um, uh, instead a, of yeah.
1: screaming about them on Facebook.
3: <laughs> um, just a follow up on you know taking a break and having that period of reflection. Um, you talked about you know sort of uh, using the internet and uh, multimedia platforms. Uh, is there anything that you're curious about uh, um, as, a form of, uh, as an art medium that you haven't used yet or that uh, you're experimenting with that you'd like to use more? Um,
1: last year I was really interested in 3D printing but that didn't work out. <laughs> I feel like they're not the printers are not there yet. <laughs> um, it's their problem, not mine. It's their fault. <laughs> Um, I don't know I I actually never thought I would work with photography and I never thought I would work with film and I used to make fun of people who were like oh that's a video that's a film what's the difference it's all the same Um, so things go in an unexpected way and I really enjoy that I, I know that and I hope actually that in two or three years I'll be doing something different and I'll be trying something different because one of my biggest nightmares as an artist is ending up doing the same thing over and over again because it's it's acceptable or it's popular but one of the things i really enjoy about making art is this idea of experimenting and learning and knowledge and and like i said i get a lot of this from youtube tutorials i if i buy a new camera or i you know anything i want to learn about anything it's to me it's a lot easier to hear and see someone else demonstrating how to use it than to read and kind of tried to imagine how this works. I mean, I love imagination, but not when it comes to machines. Um, So I feel like there will be... I would love to work... Actually, I would love to go back to painting at some point because I haven't painted in a couple of years uh, just because it it just kind of relaxes me and um, I would love to make clay sculptures maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'll go back to more traditional methods and then move again to... I would also love to work with, uh, you know, like computer-generated animations and, you know, virtual reality and things like that. There are a lot of things. Uh, not in one lifetime. so enough. So, we'll see. But, I'm, you know, I need those two months to think.
3: Look forward to it. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you.
2: Any other questions? Thank you.
3: So, once you had produced, um, you know, this artwork that expressed how you kind of feel about the world, um, in your bedroom or in uni, what was the? How did you end up getting your work shown in a calibre of galleries such as the Arnold Feeney or these other galleries where you've managed to show this series? Um, was your work seen online, on YouTube or something, or did you desperately kind of f- try and contact galleries, or did you have contact with your mum, friends with Lucy or something like that?
1: Um, no, I didn't, I didn't know Lucy before the show. <laughs> I've not met his mum. We, we became friends while making the show. <laughs> um, No, it's a process. I've been working as an artist for 17 years. So there were 13 years where very little was happening. Uh, It doesn't happen overnight. You keep working, you keep trying, you keep uh, trying to develop your work, making it better. And one of the things I did in the beginning is that I started applying a lot to um, artist workshops and artist residencies. And when you go there, you meet other young artists who are doing exciting things and come from different countries and they have their own kind of artist-run spaces in their countries and you end up going and in, being in, in smaller shows and then one thing leads to another and yeah, eventually, you know, you end up meeting people. I've been meeting people for 17 years in different contexts and different places. Every time you travel you meet more people and with meeting people, you there are always opportunities and um This is actually, uh, I mean, this show is part of a prize called uh, Deutsche Bank Artist of the Year, which is a prize that is um, initiated by Deutsche Bank, where they ask four, five curators to sit together, make a list of artists, and, and then narrow down this list to one artist. And then that becomes the Artist of the Year. And I didn't know I was even shortlisted for it. And... The prize is a lot of uh, different components. There is no money, but there are, you know, there is a traveling show that goes to museums and art centers in different parts of the world. Uh, there is a book which is in the bookstore. Um, there is a new commission that work that they commission, which is an apology to a love story that crashed into a whale. Uh, Deutsche Bank paid for that work to be produced. Um, and they also buy some work for their collection. So it's actually, in, in reality, it's a lot better than 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 getting money. Uh, because, you know, when you have work in a big collection, that means that when, when things in your career kind of slow down, there will still be, you know, when they decide to show the work, you're, you will be in a show even though you're not really, you know, you were not invited to the show. And also when you have a book that helps people see your work, and it kind of like, It helps people see it in a different light, let me put it this way. Um, And when you have four museum solo shows, that's great. So it it just, what I'm trying to say is it didn't happen overnight. And it just, one thing leads to another, you work hard and you hope for the best, and maybe you're a bit lucky, and it happens. Nice, thank you.
3: Um, I was interested that you said you were uh, going to return perhaps to painting. Um, because the themes of the sea and space, this vastness, uh, come through very much. I was wondering if you saw that the Internet, the information age, was another sea, but it it sort of diminished any sense of political entitlement. It's too vast, too provisional, too tentative, and maybe that there was some sort of reaction against that. Obviously, I'm thinking a bit in terms of the uh, Arab Spring and events in Egypt? Um,
1: the internet is a lot of things. And it, it's not just, you know, there's, there are a lot of things happening on the internet. There are people fighting. There is, uh, yes, of course, there's social media. There is there's social movements happening on the internet. But there is also a lot of... Uh, Ridiculous stuff, memes, jokes, porn I mean there's it's not just this um, and I see the internet as and maybe this is something that that kind of reduces it too much, but I see it some as as a source of knowledge about everything and 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 anything. Um, I try not to romanticize it I've seen it. You know, I'm I'm old enough to know the world before the internet and after the internet, and I've seen it evolve, and I've seen myself kind of... I remember the first time I heard about... I heard the word internet, and I was like, what is... What, what, that doesn't make any sense, like, what is this? Um, and I remember when people were chatting with each other on things that don't even exist anymore, like ICQ, and AOL Instant Messenger, and MSN, and I don't know, maybe MSN still exists. Um, but it, for me, it's, it's a very practical tool. I want to know something, I go online and I know it. And that's basically it. Uh, the Egyptian revolution is something I've lived personally, I've experienced personally, and it I'm sure has influenced me in so many different ways. And I have very strong feelings about it, but it's not something that I'm interested in making work about for many reasons I don't want to limit my work or the understanding of my work to one particular place or one particular context because I I know that what happened in Egypt will happen again in so many different countries and has happened before in so many different countries but at the same time um, there's there's something uh, this uh, kind of there's a different issue for me that you know, there's something that a lot of people died in and you know, part of making art is that eventually you're going to sell it and I kind of don't want to make... It's, maybe it's a bit too much but I don't want to make money from... So I, yeah, and I, I feel like it's... you know, Even if I make art about the Egyptian revolution it's not going to change anything. Well, because, I, I was yeah.
3: just wondering if you use this con- concept of bioluminescence in the ocean. Is that all the artists can hope to be now? A sort of small light in this vastness?
1: I think art functions on, a, on a, an individual level, not on a, uh, on a collective level. I don't think art has a lot of influence on a collective level. Just because art is not that popular, and maybe it is in the UK, but I'm talking about the whole world, I'm also talking about the third world. Um, I'm really happy when one person reacts to the work and it maybe makes them think about things differently or feel something new or feel something familiar. But I'm not, I don't have any ambition to have my work change anything on a collective level. That's, that's not what why I make my work, if that answers your question.
2: I think there was one more question over here.
1: Yes, two, actually. Two. Um,
0: I know your work's been claimed by various movements, Afro-surrealism, Afro-futurist and so on. Um, I was quite interested how you might describe your work and how you came to your particular uh, visual style, your own personal journey.
1: That's a very difficult question. I don't know, I never thought about this. I don't know if I can describe my work in 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 such a way Uh, because also I try not to I mean I. Yeah, I wasn't influenced by Afrofuturism, so I wouldn't really go in that direction because it's just it would be hypocritical, I think. Um, I was really influenced by the things I, I I experienced as a person. My childhood, my you know, when I was a teenager I used to read a lot of Theatre of the Absurd. I have read about a lot of different things and I've watched a lot of different things and I think every one of them and I've listened to a lot of music and I've read a lot of poetry and and, and I have considered a lot of songs to be poetry and I feel like all of these things kind of leave a mark on me that help shape my personality and my understanding of the world, and in, uh, you know, which also means my understanding of art and how I express myself using art. But I don't, I don't know if I can or if I would actually want to categorize or, or describe my work in any of those terms.
0: Um, I think it's really refreshing how how preoccupied you are with accessibility in your work um so people from all walks of life can access it access it um has that I'm wondering whether that's always been in the back of your mind in previous works and going forwards um is that something that you're always going to be the interactive nature of work and responding to it through hashtags or so forth, is that something that's really, really important to you going forwards in your work? And uh, do you think even with with still images like painting and stuff, is there space for that sort of um, interactive element with that kind of work as well? Or?
1: Painters have a lot of followers on Instagram. <laughs> um, no, but I. I uh Actually, this is something, the the whole response thing with hashtags is something very new that I just started in last December with the the show when it was at the MCA in Chicago. Um, I think it happens gradually. It kind of like evolves, like my thinking about everything evolves and my understanding of social media also evolves. Uh, I guess it started when I decided to build my website. years ago, which is something I've been resisting. And then when I built my website, I thought, well, this is a huge leap for me, so maybe I should make another huge leap and put all the films online. Because also, it didn't make any sense for me to make these stupid PDF portfolios that have stills of the films that say absolutely nothing about the films, when I could just put them online for people to watch them. It just didn't make any sense. So I decided to put them online, and I think that was the first... And a step in seeking this interaction with people. Um, and then again, of course, I resisted social media for a very long time, and I resisted Facebook, but then I got on Facebook, and then I hated Facebook, so I, you know, after resisting Instagram for a very long time, I got on Instagram. I still like Instagram, uh, but mainly because it's just images and people don't have to argue and fight using words. But uh, it's, it's, an, it's an evolving process. I feel like it's not, it's not something... Um, and when I make work, I don't think about this. I don't think that's... I, I know this was part of your question. It's not, it's not part of the work. It's a way of responding or interacting with the work, which are two different things. I make the work that I want to make. I, I hope I will not think... Because if I start thinking about this, I'll be starting to think about what people like. Or what, what would be popular or, you know, what would get more likes? And that's a horrible, horrible road to go down. <laughs> I don't want to do that.
2: Um, I was just going to ask you, um, what kind of, like, difficulties do you experience mentally when you try to express mentally. yourself? Yeah, yes. and also, like, what kind of because obviously you seem quite self-aware, so what kind of like blocks do you have and how, how do you overcome that? And also in terms of like trying to navigate through the art world, what kind of challenges have you faced or how, how do you deal with that kind of thing?
1: Uh, actually, art is my way to navigate these things. It's just the thing that kind of makes me feel comfortable and... and you know, I'm sitting by myself and I'm creating things, and I don't have to think about the world. Um, how do I navigate the art world? I think the most important thing is to understand that you're dealing with people, with human beings. They have good days and bad days, and they have feelings, and they have families, and they have. Uh, it's just to be more understanding, and 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 not. It's not like the whole world around us doesn't revolve around art. To understand that there is. Uh, you know, it's a very tiny, small element of the world, um, and to not let myself become way too absorbed in what I call the art bubble, which is, you know, I, I, I mean, that's all I do. I, I mean, I show my work, I talk about art, I make art. So it's not, it's not that I'm like against it, but it's there is a there is a balance, and. Yeah, just be real and not be pretentious and, and just to be who you are and people will like you. <laughs> it's not it's not that difficult, I think. I mean, maybe maybe it also comes with experience. Of course, it wasn't always that easy, but maybe it also comes with experience. Um, you try and you fail and you do things and you go home and you say, oh, I said that, that was really stupid, I shouldn't have said that. But then you don't do it the next time. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, that's how I navigate, I guess.
2: (laughs) I think we've got one more question here. I don't know how we're doing for time, but um, we can maybe take one or two more questions.
3: Yeah, Basim, Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, one of the benefits you have from traveling with your work is that it affords you the opportunity to do filming and uh, capture material when you're out and about and I wondered um, even though it's the briefest of visits you've had so far Is there anything about uh, the Bristol? uh, environment or the Bristol context that Has intrigued you perhaps that you might consider filming or piqued your interest?
1: Um, I This trip has been way too short to be able to to answer this question in an informed way but it has definitely Intrigued me enough to want to come back. Um, to be honest, I mean, I've I've only been here for like three days, and I've only been around this part of Bristol, which I understand is not really Bristol, which is you know beautiful. I'm sure that's where all the tourists like to go. Um, and you know, I've had good food, good beer, but I that's that's extremely reductive, and I don't want to base my understanding of a place on on what I'm talking about. So. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a good introduction. And uh, I bought a couple of photography cameras and I'll hopefully get the chance to take a couple of pictures, but that's, I'm not like trying to push it. Uh, but we'll see, maybe in the future, there'll be a better, more relaxed opportunity where there is more time to actually be more involved.
3: So is is that not a, a constant uh, challenge you have with when you are traveling, to be able to get the opportunity to truly immerse yourself rather than pass through a place?
1: Uh, it is, but also accept the fact that this is extremely difficult, if not impossible, because you don't, even if you are not from this, if you're not from a place and you live there for years, sometimes you still don't understand this place. I mean... I'm Egyptian. i lived mo- most of my life in Egypt. I still don't understand Egypt. Um, and I have been living in Switzerland for nine years and I still don't understand Switzerland. So it's it's not... Maybe Maybe the fact that I don't make work about places is a reaction to that, that I don't want to exoticize or fetishize places to become something I pretend to understand when if I showed the film to the people from these places, they would think it's the most ridiculous thing they've ever seen. And maybe that's a reaction also to me seeing people doing this um, to, for example, Egypt. When I lived in Egypt, you know, artists would go to Egypt, spend three months and make the most reductive, uh, ridiculous work about a place they know nothing about. They just know... They Actually, the first thing you start noticing is the differences uh, because they become exotic right away. So I, I don't want to fall for this trap. I just, even if I take footage in places, I try to take footage of things, of details of things, uh, things that are extremely mundane, and then I kind of weave them together to build a fictional narrative.
2: Okay, any more questions before we um, wrap up and let everyone kind of have a look at the exhibition? all go to the
1: bar yeah it would be it would be good to see the work that you've been hearing yeah. about <laughs> <laughs> yeah before the gallery's closed because yeah. we did this Great. in reverse <laughs> okay thank so, you thank, thank you. you all